Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. I'm Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Tyler Klang. And today we're delving into a very fascinating, strange, and sometimes disturbing story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this one's got a lot of history to it. And I think that over the years, I would assume that somebody has requested this story. Yes. It, it would have yeah. to have been requested by now. It's a story that you know might be familiar to some of you. Hopefully, you, you'll still listen because uh, I think maybe some new things will turn up here, at least some additional information that maybe you didn't know because we're going to read into the story a little bit from – or I guess outside of the story a little bit mm-hmm. um, into some of the characters involved because there's some unusual people involved in this whole thing. And there have been some twists and turns since the original story broke many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes, today – Friends and neighbors, ladies and gentlemen, fellow gearheads, we are exploring the strange story of the Shelby Daytona Coupe. But not just any Shelby Daytona Coupe. No, no, no. We're talking about the very first Shelby Daytona Coupe. So, um, the Cobra Coupe, we should say. And it's, uh, chassis number CSX2287. So that may come up a couple of times, but that's what that means. That's the mm-hmm. chassis number. That was the very first, uh, I guess a prototype vehicle that was developed by, uh, Shelby. And uh, it was built really – I mean, it's funny to hear how this car was built. I and mean, we'll, we'll get into the story in just a moment. But this is a car it, – it's kind of crude in a way. I mean, if you look at the, the coupe, it's, it's very, very crude compared to the other – what were the other five more? I think right, they were made. Yeah, there were a total yeah. of six made mm-hmm. in, in the complete set, I guess. The first one was the prototype, and that was very rudely – no, not rudely, crudely put together – on a shop floor, you know, they they drew it out on I think they said on butcher paper mm-hmm. on the on the shop floor of uh, you know Shelby's shop there in, in California. And I mean, it's not like it has a tremendous amount of horsepower, but it's a race car. It's a full bred race car. It, it has 385 horsepower. It's an eight cylinder, 4.74 liter engine that, that's below below the uh, the hood there, the long hood, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's far more aerodynamic than the Cobra uh, Roadster, I guess. 
Right. And this car is a big deal. It was the first American car to beat Ferrari on its own turf, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and that's what it was built for. Yeah, and that's what it was built for. Specifically too. to do that, out of spite. It's a Ferrari killer. Yes. Yep. A successful one too. Yeah. Uh, it fell into the hands of uh, a celebrity mm-hmm. in the Los Angeles area. Sure. Just given the high high uh, level look. Kind of the said. overarching view of the story. Here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then for 30 years, it was just gone. Poof. Vanished. Well, some people knew where it was. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right, some cool. did, but but it had it was gone from the public eye. Most people had no idea what happened to it. Absolutely, there were very very few that knew where it was, and so many people believed it was lost to history. Mm-hmm. But let's let's talk about what this what this vehicle is actually. Not just uh, Shelby Cobra Daytona Coupe, but also you know the prototype specifically. It is, of course, the brainchild of one of the most famous men in the story of automotive racing. Oh, sure, yeah, and we've we've actually done a complete episode on this person. It's uh, it's called the Carol Shelby story, mm-hmm. and we recorded that back in June of 2013. So, if you want to delve kind of deeper into who Carol Shelby was and uh, and what he did, that's where to go. And uh, we also have done a story on the Shelby Cobra 427, which was uh, – <laughs> Oh, wow, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah the Super Snake, right? Uh-huh. Oh, man, what a story that was. That was back in April of 2011, and uh, that one had some history to it as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, who else? Well, it seems like we've done some other Cobra stories, but maybe not. I'll have to comb through our archives to find out exactly what's going on. But, you know, this car was built, as you said, Ben, as a – uh, a specific road racing car to beat Ferrari at its own game, really, because Ferrari was just dominating the field. And, uh, and this car, built by Carroll Shelby, now he he had stopped racing by 1963. Right. Um, he yeah. had kind of given it up. Now, he's very successful as a racer. I mean, he had won um, the the uh, FIA World Championship, the Sports Car Championship in 1959, but he, I think he was driving a um, an Aston Martin at the time. Yeah, and, yeah. But, but he had beaten Ferrari in his Aston Martin. Now, he wanted to build an American car that could beat Ferrari at their own game. And that's exactly what he set about doing in 1964 with this Daytona Coupe. And it had to have certain characteristics that made it um, a, a lot more aerodynamic, I guess, on the mm-hmm. on the track versus the 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 Cobra that we normally think of the open sea, the open roadster the AC Cobra roadster exactly yeah. because that's the one that he had um, he had helped develop that right I mean mm-hmm. he had as a as a racer he had helped develop the AC Cobra roadster and that's why he had this affinity for that vehicle but he knew that to compete at Le Mans mm-hmm. you know where they've got this uh, they got the Mulsanne straight which is three miles long he knew that it had to be extremely aerodynamic and not only that just I mean overall aerodynamic to win uh, not not just that one race but he wanted to win the whole series. Right. And one thing that he did, which was really, really clever of him, is he contacted other people who were experts in related fields. In particular, we're thinking of a designer named Pete Brock, who helped evolve the form of the coupe to, uh, you know, to reach maximum speed, especially for that three-mile straight you were talking about. And so in their very first season in 1964, they actually did pretty well. I mean, uh, there were a couple of, you know, Backslides, I guess. They didn't do, you know, they didn't win outright. Uh, but they did do pretty well, especially in the 24-hour Le Mans, which was one of the goals that they they had. They call that, uh, some people call it the Super Bowl of racing, really. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, that's a big race to win. Um, they did okay in that one. They, they had, uh, beaten the Corvettes, the Lolas, the Porsches, the Alphas, um, 
at, at, but the uh, the Daytonas they still finished behind the Ferrari GTOs for that first year in 1964. But in 1965, finally, Shelby took first place, and it was the first American racing team to do so. It took nine out of twelve events in the class with a crucial win in a uh, in some of the really historic races like the 24 Hours of Daytona, uh, the Italian Grand Prix at Monza, you know, the thousand kilometer race held at the uh, the Nurburgring, uh, which at the time, remember, <laughs> we were talking about the full Nurburgring, which uh, oh, the one wow. that Jackie, yeah. uh, who was it, uh, Jackie Stewart called the, the Green Hell. Remember mm-hmm. that? Uh, that's quite a track to, uh, to to win on, but did very well in those, and uh, and so of course you know that like he had done it he had beaten ferrari at its own at its own game and uh and shelby had kind of made his mark on uh on the world i guess as building this american uh well i guess it'd be a it's not really muscle car but it's a uh, it's a supercar fighter really you know yeah a ferrari beater yeah and for shelby this was pretty much Mission accomplished. Sure. We're yeah. done. Yeah, right? yeah. The car that he had built in Venice remains the only one made in America. The other five, because we said there were six overall, yeah. they were sent out to Italy as frames right under Ferrari's nose. Now, isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. Built in Modena, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, right there. In the neighborhood. <laughs> I know. How, how much of a snub is that? I mean, but but so that, that prototype, though, the one that we're talking about was an American-built car, and that's exactly what he had done. In 1964, he'd built this thing. And in 1965, um, this is when he uh, he actually had this, uh, uh, like this sensational season where he won. But let's go back one year. Let's okay. go back to 1964. Uh, the CSX um, 2287 had a, uh, a difficult time at Daytona. Yes. Um, but it survived. Here's what happened. There was a pit fire. And uh, the incident, of course, cost the the, uh, the car the race in 1964. Didn't win Daytona in 64. Uh, and it also injured somebody, right? Yeah, it injured a fellow named John Olson. Uh, this this guy had previously served as a crew chief for Shelby, and he was a fabricator from New Zealand. Or excuse me, New Zealand. No, I messed it up. How do you say it? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm not even going to venture into that one. Ben. I am going to go back, Scott. I'm going to go back when we're off air and find that amazing pronunciation guide oh, that yeah. uh, some Australian listeners sent to us. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it gave us uh, the how-to of, of all the uh, the towns that we normally mispronounce mm-hmm. here on our show on a regular basis. It's how we learn to pronounce Melbourne. Yeah, that's right. Well, anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. this – so – Well, the this, pit fire. The pit fire. Yeah, this fellow Olsen uh, suffered – some pretty serious but first-degree burns uh, in a pit fire yeah. in, in 1964. Yeah, and there were – I think it was a refueling incident that happened. And luckily, the car didn't completely go up in flames. Uh, it was saved. I mean, if you look at the photos from, the, from that day of what was happening, uh, you would be hard-pressed to believe that that car would make it out of that okay. But it, it did. And uh, I think mostly what we're seeing there is the, the – uh, the smoke from the, the extinguishers, you know, going around it. Maybe the, the fire was smaller than we think. Yeah. Um, but it also it, one thing that it did have it had um, what uh, what they call Lamont stripes, which is are two white bands that ran the length of the car over something uh, a paint called Viking blue. And this Viking blue became kind of the um, I don't know. I guess the uh, like an iconic um, color combination. You know, the Viking blue with the white stripes. That kind of became. A thing right about right around this time, around 1964, 1965, with this Shelby Daytona Cobra Coupe. So, um, I don't know. It just set a lot of things in motion for uh, the way 
American cars look and, and present themselves around the world. I mean, right. it, it became a recognizable thing. It set a precedent. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of countries have their own racing colors. You know, um, mm-hmm. Italy has red, of course, and, you know, we have the, the blue and white combination, whether it's a white car with blue stripes or blue car with white stripes. Um, but the Cobras, again, are known for the blue with white stripes. And, um, you know, after this, uh, this 1965 championship, the car, the, the, the prototype car was retired from racing. That's, that's about it. I mean, that's the last time that it was seen worldwide on track anywhere, but that, but it wasn't quite over yet. Right. Exactly. Because this, again, the specific vehicle we're talking about, CSX 2287, the only entirely American made coupe here, uh, even though it didn't race, it still set some speed records. On November 6th of the same year of 1965, uh, it was hauled out to the Bonneville Salt Flats to race against the clock. Yeah, sure. This is uh, record holder Craig Breedlove. Now, I remember Craig Breedlove's name from you know, going through the, uh, the Guinness Book of World of Records when I was a kid. I had, you know, the print, the print copies, <laughs> yeah. you know, the big thick versions of those. Oh, yeah. I used to love looking at those and all the car records that were in there. And Craig Breedlove, I know, was in there several times. Uh, but over four days, this car set 23 national and international re- speed records and it reached a top speed of 187 miles per hour. So, um, you know, did very well, very successful at the Bonneville Salt Flats, you know, during that, during that month or the, mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, the full month really out there. Um, but after that, I mean, that was about it as far as like, you know, r- racing, competition, all that. I mean, as, as this article put, and oh, by the way, we're following along from an article in, uh, in CNN, but we're going to add a bunch of information to it as well. Um, they say, as they say, it was kind of like the last roar of this lion. Exactly. And now we're starting to see just how much stuff this vehicle accomplished in such a cartoonishly short span of time. Very, very short. I mean, what? All six were built between 1964, 1965. Sure. Won multiple races, yeah. set world records. And then retired in 1965, at the very end of 1965. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about a two-year span. This car made history, really. Right. And, and now it's just suddenly um, – I guess, you know, to the racers, I mean, it's kind of worthless at this point. It's not, not really worthless. I mean, it's a car that they have, you know, some, some attachment to, but um, not so attached that they couldn't sell it, right? And that's exactly, exactly what they did. And, you know, we should talk about that after the first break from our sponsor. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bare Premium Plus Paint is here to make it happen, and it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. Picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. 
Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window, feel the warmth and comfort of a spring sunrise with shades like coral cloud and dark crimson. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with a durable finish that resists dirt and grime to last all season. And let your creativity bloom with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. So, Ben, we were talking about the end of an era, I guess, a very short era, a, right. very, a two-year era, if you want to call it that. A moment and, in uh, the sun. And so, you know, they've got this car. This, uh, it's, it's kind of a – I wouldn't say pointless, but it is pointless to them. They're not going to continue on with this vehicle. They have to move on. They have to, you know, compete with, uh, with you know, the newer, better cars in 1966, 1967, so on. Which means they have to uh, create new vehicles with new technology, lessons yeah. learned from previous iterations as – Historically important as CSX 2287 might be at this point, it's not practical to race anymore. No, no, no. So what are they going to do? They're going to they're going to sell it, right? They're going to uh, they're going to get rid of this thing, and they sold it to a guy named Jim Russell, who was the founder of a toy company called Ruskits. Now Ruskits was a, uh, a maker of. Um, Small slot cars and, uh, you know, yeah. model, like model slot cars. Yeah, they made toy cars specifically. Yeah, exactly. So he was a, a you know, just a, a, a toy company owner and, uh, they sold it to this guy as a, uh, like an old prototype car, just kind of an old beat up race car for $4,500. That's crazy. And we did the math too. Uh, so that's $4,500 in November of 1965. Today, that's just over 35 grand. Oh, not bad. That's bad, surprisingly but, low. Well, it is. You know, I mean, for what you're getting, I guess. But you got to remember, this is just a race car. It's not really a car meant for the street. Although that changes soon, very soon. So, <laughs> Jim, Jim uh, Russell eventually sells this vehicle to another really interesting character, and this is a guy that we're going to talk about um, at, at a little bit of length, but not not uh, not too in depth, really. I mean, it, we're not really a music show, Ben, really, but right. uh, but we're gonna we're gonna try for just a moment to talk about music. How about that? All right, let's All right, do so, it. <laughs> so this car <laughs> ends up in the hand hands of a very eccentric music producer by the name of Phil Spector. 
and Spectre at the time was just 26 years old. Now, this is, uh, this would have to be, um, 1966 when he sold it. So it's very soon after, uh, when, when, um, you know, after Jim Russell had purchased it, he sold it to Phil Spector because, uh, Phil Spector was born in 1940 and I think he's 77 today, right now. And, um, this is kind of funny. Now, Specter had a different vision for this. Now, he's 26. He's a, a um, music producer. And should we just talk about him for just a moment before yeah, we really get uh, into this? Because he does some interesting things with the car. I'll tell you that. All right. So Specter, as I said, he's he's about 77 right now. He's he's still around. Now, you may have heard Specter's name in the last uh, seven or eight years. And this is kind of a new development of the story because the one that the story that we're reading. Um, the article that we're reading from, I think all this kind of came around, you know, we started hearing about 2287 around, I'm going to say 2003, somewhere around there. That might have been when we first started hearing about it. Uh, but it gets, it, there's a twist to this whole thing that happens around 2008, 2009, or maybe even, two, yeah, 2009, I, I would say. Um, Phil Spector was convicted of the second degree murder of Lana Clarkson. Now, that was an, an actress in Hollywood. And, uh, and Phil, I don't know, he was married at the time. I mean, he still is married. Right. Um, he had this mansion. Uh, there's a really strange circumstance where they found Lana Clarkson dead in a chair in his entryway. She had been shot, I think, in, through the mouth. Yeah, and the, uh, she had, her broken teeth were scattered across the carpet. Yeah, and, uh, there was like a revolver <sighs> at her feet. And, uh, I think that the, I want to say it was, I'm just trying to recall this from the top of my head here, Ben, but I think that his driver, Called nine one one or called the emergency services, and in the background, Spectre can be heard saying something like, uh, "What was it, Ben?" I think I've killed someone. Yeah, so he, they hear that in the background, but then later he would deny the whole thing and say that it was just a, um, a suicide attempt on her part. Well, a suicide on her part. Yeah, he called it accidental suicide. Said that she kissed the gun. Uh, the driver, Andriano de Souza, also said that he saw Spectre come out of the back door of a house with a gun in his hand. Uh, he posted a million dollar bail because he was, you know, obscenely rich from his musical success. He's unbelievably successful, I mean, at this time. So this is such a strange thing to happen. Now, he was, of course, he wasn't 26 at the time. He was much older when this happened. Right. Uh, but he, uh, he was very, very successful. He worked with people like, uh, like the Beatles. On, on records. I mean, he created the wall of sound that we've heard about. Um, right. Where that's what, what the, uh, I, I'm not gonna try to even describe exactly what that is, but it's this overpowering sound that, that, uh, everybody became, uh, like a fan of. You know, a everybody. Continual coherent wave. Yeah, that's right. And that's yeah. the reason why we hear music the way we do now is because of the wall of sound. It was, it was kind of invented by Phil Spector. And he started out really, really young, like in high school young, uh, with a group called the Teddy Bears. And he had lots of number one songs in the US and UK, you know, as a, as a producer. Um, but again, convicted of killing this, um, um, this, uh, this actress of second degree murder, he's put away for a long time. He's in prison right now. Uh, he's serving a, I think it's a 19 to life sentence. And I think he won't right. be up for parole. For like another eleven years, so he's going to be eighty-eight if and when he ever gets out. Which I don't, I don't know if he ever will at this point. But interesting character. Take a look if you get a chance. Take yeah. a look at the photos of of him, and I'll tell you why he has such an unusual look. Because uh, you, you'll probably notice something really strange. His hair is really, really strange. Right. And, and I had, along with everybody else, had kind of 
laughed a little bit, you know, chuckled a little bit when you see him because he wears these outlandish wigs, right? Uh-huh. And I thought, well, what the heck is up with these wigs? Why? Because it's always changing. It was always looking different. Sometimes it was like um, a giant afro wig. Another yeah. time it was, uh, you know, like a shorter wig. It looked like a little bit like Rod Stewart back in the day, you know, uh-huh. that kind of wig. And it changes around quite a bit. Lots of different looks. And it used to be dark, then it's light and all this. Well, I wondered what the heck was going on with it. Turns out he was in a horrific accident that nearly killed him. Oh, wow. In, uh, in 1977, I think it was. And burned off his uh, No, no, it didn't burn it. He went through the windshield of his car in 1977. Now, not this one, not the Shelby Cobra that he eventually owns, the Daytona Coupe that we're talking about. But he went through the windshield of his car, and I guess he had to get something like, they said it was like 300 stitches on his face and 400 on the back of his head. So he had 700 stitches on his head. That's the that's the story that I've heard or that I've read about. And uh, because of that, because of the scarring and his unusual, uh, you know, the, the the scars that are left behind, you can't grow hair on those. Oh, yeah. Uh, that leaves his hairline looking really bizarre. And uh, so he decides to wear these wigs, these outlandish wigs. And I, I had, again, during the trial, everybody kind of cracked up about it. And if you look at his mug shots, they look Horrible. I mean, he doesn't have the wig on, and his hair yeah. is just a stringy mess, and um, you can't really see on his face evidence of the scars. But there might have been some uh, some cosmetic surgery. I'm not sure, but um, that kind of speaks to why he wears why he wears that unusual getup, and you know what what that's all about. And he was really eccentric. He was kind of a, a recluse for a while. I know he uh, he stayed out of the public eye for quite some time. Yeah. Okay. Without without. <laughs> Diminishing the guy's contributions to American music, which fundamentally means contributions to world music. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have a ethical responsibility to note that he was a real pill, had a history of incredible violence, multiple arrests. And these are in the days before the internet, you know, when a lot of people with uh, power or celebrity could just get away with stuff and it wouldn't be in the news cycle. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I just want to say categorically, he is a bad person. Yeah, I guess so. Now, with great taste in cars, uh, but a bad person. Okay, so let's get back to the Shelby because he bought this car. He bought this old race car, right? Yeah, so he for buys 4500 I'm not sure that he bought it for $4,500. you are right. You're right because that's what uh, the Ruskits uh, founder bought it for. Yeah, so it may have been a little more. It may have been a little less. I'm not exactly sure. I don't I don't know what the price was, but um, he, he had this thing. He got, he got this thing when he was 26 years old. So he's a young guy in, uh, um, I think it's, he lives in La Hambra, I think. I think that's right. Um, but somewhere around Venice, California, like where, where it was built, where it was originally built. Um, that's where Carol Shelby's shop was. And, uh, again, 26 year old, he's, you know, cruising the Sunset Strip in this, in this old race car. He's driving it on the street, which he, he really shouldn't be doing, but he is. And he had taken house paint, yellow house paint, and painted on the driver's door the records that it ha- that it held in Bonneville, but he exaggerated them. They weren't the the honest records. So I don't know why he felt the need to exaggerate the the, the records. I wish I had a, a print that showed me what that says. And I remember seeing an article many years ago where there's a close up of the uh, of the the supposed records that he po- painted on the door. And again, this is kind of a sloppy job done with a you know a paintbrush by by Phil Spector himself. Uh, you'll see it in the original photos, you know, of the of the car before it was cleaned up. You know, before we we talk about where it went to. We'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, but you can see the yellow print on the on the driver's door. That's no longer there. They cleaned that all off. But um, I wish I could find out what that said because <laughs> why would why would you feel the need to exaggerate, you know, 23 national and international speed records? Why why would you bother with that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems like that's that's 
pretty good on its own, right? Well, uh, there had to be some truth to the exaggerations because uh, Spectre was sure driving the thing like it was in the middle of a race every time <laughs> he hit the ignition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he uh, he he pretty much left it alone. I think maybe they had uh, he had done some upholstery work to it or something mm-hmm. like that, and that might even have been Jim Jim Russell that well, had done that. He racked up so many tickets that his lawyer told him. He needed to get rid of it. <laughs> yes. His legal team told yeah. him. So That's he's crazy. A, he's, you know, he's he's uh, he's creating. He's making himself into a nuisance in this car yeah. in California on the streets because it's a race car. It's a, it's a really fast car, and uh, and I guess you know the thing is. It wasn't really a smooth ride, of course, because, again, it's a race car. And the other thing is that, of course, you know, with that engine up front, you know, it's a race engine, it just really, really got hot inside it after just a couple of miles. So that was one of the – um, a couple of things that he wanted to fix on the car. He didn't want to uh, want to retire it. He wanted to continue to drive this car. So, you know, his uh, his lawyer was telling him otherwise. But it was a couple of things that he wanted to fix. You know, he wanted to, you know, make sure that it wasn't getting quite as hot anymore. He wanted to make it a little more drivable, a little softer ride. Um, I don't know about quieting it down, but, uh, you know, someone eventually wanted to quiet it down. I know they, they had to weld a bunch of mufflers on the thing just to smooth it out a little bit. But, um, you know, overall, this was not a car for the for the street. And, so finally, his lawyer gets through to him and says, you got to get rid of this thing. And he, he agrees, all right, fine, i got to get rid of it. But someone offers him, uh, what was it, an extremely low number for scrapping the car. Uh, 800 bucks. $800. Now, that sounds like something, I don't know, it seems like what they would offer you right now for just any old pile of junk car, right? I mean, a yeah. scrap car. You're pretty much just getting it for weight at that point, for metal weight. So they offer him $800 for the car to scrap it. And I'm glad, I'm so glad that he didn't do that. Everybody's glad that he didn't do that. Yeah, instead he sold the car to his bodyguard, George Brand, for $1,000. I've got to also ask you this, Scott. Sure. Do you know anybody who had a bodyguard when they were 26? <laughs> no, I don't think I do. Maybe we just live in a different world. Tyler, do you know anybody who had a bodyguard when they were 26? He's thinking about it. That's a hard no from him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I I mean, you? Any idea? Like, anybody at all? I, I mean, I guess technically people in jail. Yeah, I, technically, sure. They have a lot of bodyguards. Well, yeah, I <laughs> but I don't so. think they sell the cars. I don't think it's the same thing. So uh, he sold this car to his bodyguard for $1,000. And about right there is where, for the next several decades, the car disappeared. Sure, yeah. You know what? We should talk about that after our second break. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bear Premium Plus Paint is here to make it happen. 
And it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. Picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window, feel the warmth and comfort of a spring sunrise with shades like coral cloud and dark crimson. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with a durable finish that resists dirt and grime to last all season. And let your creativity bloom with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ah, Scott, okay. I'm, I'm of two minds about this. I'm on the fence. Should we talk about the mystery or should we tell people what actually happened? Oh, boy. Um... Let's talk about the mystery just for a moment. How about okay, that? All okay, right. okay. So, so here's the scoop on the on the mystery. You know, he, he uh, the guy, uh, the bodyguard, George Brand. He had given this car to his daughter, and her name was Donna O'Hara. And the strange thing about what Donna O'Hara did with his car, I mean, it's again, it's this uh, this race car that holds all these national international speed records. She takes the car. Of course, you know it's being traded now at this point for a thousand dollars. I think I've heard other stories where it traded hands a couple times between them for a couple hundred dollars here and there. Uh, it was probably just a way to get cash every now and then, you know, trade the car back and get it back again. Oh. I don't. I don't it's strange, strange situation around this whole thing. But let's just say that this thousand dollar sale was the last one. He had given it to his daughter, Don O'Hara. She did something that a lot of people consider unthinkable. She put it into a storage unit out in California, and she just simply left it there. For 30 years. And paid rent on this. Every month, every single month, she wrote a check or, you know, paid the rent for this car for 30 years in storage. Can you imagine the price? I mean, that's that's ridiculous for a car. And, and, you know, at the time, no one really thought it was worth anything. I mean, at the very most we've seen this car trade hands for is $4,500. So what was this? Uh uh, paid rent three that was three hundred and sixty months, I guess. If that's thirty years, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, so no one knows why she did it. Yeah, no one has a clue, right? No. I mean, it's really strange. I mean, it's it's just an odd behavior. But again, this person is a little bit odd. I mean, she really is. And a couple people knew where this thing was. You know, they they knew. What had happened to it? I think it was a secret, but yeah, there were people in the know. Yeah, remember we earlier on we said you know it had gone away for thirty years and no one really knew, but there were just a couple of people that knew about it. Carol Shelby happened to be one of the people that knew about it, and 
you know, somewhere along the line, he uh, he wanted to maybe get the car back. And I don't know why that was. I mean, she had several offers for this car. We're talking about $2 million offers for this car towards the end, right? Someone someone offered her as much as $2 million, and she said, no way. She completely rebuffed this. Now, there's a story of Carol Shelby himself going to visit Miss O'Hara at her house, and she would even open the screen door to talk to him. You know, and here he yeah. is offering her two million dollars for a car that's sitting in storage that she's been paying for for thirty years at this point. So people just couldn't communicate with her full stop, and as a result of this, the CSX two two eight seven remained untouched from nineteen seventy one to two thousand and one. And we want to take just just a quick moment here to let you know what happens when a car is in storage for that long. <laughs> yeah. So, Scott, in the past, you and I looked at what happens to cars when they are stored in time capsules, and in almost every case, the cars are pretty much trashed and totaled when you know they're finally dug up. Oh, sure. 25 years later, they're a disaster, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the rubber is all rotted, and anything you know that had fuel in it is, you know, any of the lines or anything, they're all gummed up. It's, it's just, just, it's not a good thing to leave a car alone for that long. They really do need to be driven and cleaned and, you know, maintained, I guess, along the way. And this one was not being maintained. However, I want to point out that everything was original on the car. It was still original on the vehicle. So right. we're talking about, like, your, you know, Tires that were still on it from when Spectre drove it in 1965 or six, mm-hmm. uh, 1966, I guess. And um, everything again, no parts had really been changed. I think they had changed a little bit of the upholstery inside. There was something done to that, and I think I believe you're correct. And again, I think somebody had welded some mufflers onto it at some point just to quiet it down. I heard rumor somewhere, and I don't know where this is in my notes here. I'll never find it, but uh, someone said they had to weld eight mufflers onto the thing to quiet it down. I don't know if I, be- <laughs> I, don't know if I believe that, but uh, they, they claim it was eight mufflers. Eight? No, there's no way. There's no way. There's no way, yeah. I don't know. Strange. Um, but, yeah, so, but the point remains there was very little after factory work done on it. Oh yeah, very very much. It's a it's a an original condition, you know, American sports car. It's just left alone for 30 years. And that's where uh we see the story take another turn in 2001, around 2001. A uh lawyer named Martin Ears helped out a client of his named Frederick Simeon, is that correct? Scott? Simeon is right, yes. And uh, he was a, uh, he's a, at the time, he was a retired neurosurgeon. So this guy had uh, probably had some money in his hand, right? I mean, but they won't tell us how much he offered O'Hara for the car. However, you know, this is all kind of um, through this lawyer. You know, this is all happening through the lawyer. It's an amount that they say they don't want to disclose, but they think that it was somewhere around $4 million he offered her for the car. So this is double the offers that were coming prior to this, you know, that she was just simply not even opening the door for, really. $4 million bucks. Yeah. For a car that she had just left behind, you know. It's something it's very strange, but um, as uh, as Fred Simeon says himself, you know, it's a very realistic offer. This is what the car is really worth. It's got that much history, that much heritage, and it's a piece of American history, really. So um, it, it, it has to be saved. And around 2008, later, uh, Fred Simeon, you might recognize the name, uh, he opened up something called the Simeon Auto Museum, Automotive Museum in Philadelphia. And... Uh, well, we'll tell you about that in a little bit. I mean, that holds a, uh, a part of this. But the Simeon Museum, I just want to mention this briefly here before we forget. Sure. That's a place where he ha- he has a bunch of race cars, lots of them. I mean, I, I want to say more than 60, 70, 80, somewhere around there. 
all of them, he will at some point drive. He'll he'll gather he'll gather them up in some way, like a grouping that makes sense somehow, like American race cars, let's say. So some sort of theme or genre. Yeah, exactly. Like maybe Le Mans cars or whatever. But he has a he has only race cars in this museum, and he will take them out. And I don't know what the schedule is on this. I can't remember if it's monthly or weekly. But he drives all these vehicles. He, he takes them out in the parking lot. He allows the public to come out and watch. And, of course, they're not really raced like to their full potential. They're not completely opened up because he wants to preserve and protect them. He wants to make sure that you know, they, they remain intact, I guess. He doesn't want to smash them up. Because a lot of people you know, say, well, why aren't you actually racing these cars? Why don't you take them to the track and race right. them? And he says, well, I, you know, I, I like them too much to, to destroy them. I don't want to do that. But I do want people to see them. And I guess when – you know, you're there at that museum and you see them in, in action, you know, out in the parking lot or whatever, even if it's just, you know, starting them up and revving them a little bit, uh, that gives you a completely different feel about the car. And, um, again, that's going to come into play a little bit later, the Simeon Museum, as you can, I'm sure everybody can guess what's going on with that. But, uh, <laughs> so that's the guy that offered up $4 million for this thing. And, um, okay, so this is back, again, this is going back, uh, to what, 2001, somewhere around there? Or 2001, two, yeah, three, somewhere around there? Yeah. 2001. All right, and this is where the story takes another little twist, or actually a big twist. Tyler, could we get a uh, sinister music cue? Perfect. All right, it has to do with Donna O'Hara. And Donna O'Hara had a... Um, well, you know, she she had some. I think there were some mental issues there. I mean, yeah, clearly there were there were some there's some things going on with Donna, and it was uh, it was Sunday, October twenty second in the year. Uh, actually, it's the year two thousand, so it's back a year earlier than we had thought. And the sale had happened prior to two thousand. The sale between O'Hara and um, Frederick Simeon had happened prior to this. She had apparently she had willed um, the proceeds from this sale to her mother. And then one morning, she went out early in the morning, took two gallons of gasoline with her, went out to some, uh, I think it was like a horse trail out in the, out in the woods somewhere, uh, took a couple of, this is a weird thing, she took a couple of, of bunny rabbits with her, and she completely covered herself in gasoline and the rabbits, and then lit herself on fire in a culvert somewhere. And uh, I guess she had... Uh, Unexpectedly, you know, I mean, you would expect this, we would all expect this, but I think she expected to stay in place, you know, kind of hidden while she lit herself on fire. This is, uh, this is called self-immolation. Not to be discovered. Yeah, she didn't want to really be discovered. So she had done this to the rabbits as well. We don't know why that happened. We don't know why any of this really happened. Uh, but she had lit herself on fire and I guess she had run some distance. So they found her like, you know, 30 feet farther away from where she had lit herself. And there was another gallon of, uh, of gasoline that was left behind. So they know where she started from. And, uh, you know, a couple of police officers, you know, came upon her in the morning. This is like right after dawn. And uh, she was asking them to just, you know, she was telling them, like, just shut up, stay away from me. I just want to die. Just right. just leave me alone. It was her request to just be left alone and die. She had burns on 98% of her body from this. So, uh, you know, who knows what demon she was, she was fighting here. Uh, but she had, again, kind of prepared for this by willing the proceeds of the sale to her mother and had kind of... Um, Made sure that everything for that transaction was in place, but there were still some questions. Yes, the owner's demise sparked a legal battle around the car, and this went on for months. And the, according to Simeon, the aftermath of the sale was more difficult than the sale itself because when word got out amongst the the auto community that the car was discovered and was being purchased by a private party, a lot of people desperately wanted to buy it for themselves, and they asked the judge 
to put it up for a public sale, which would disregard that agreement. And also, you know, it should go without saying that on our part, um, you know, we have immense difficulty imagining how it would feel to lose your daughter, like for this mother to lose her daughter and sure. then have to go to court with people oh, sure. over a material possession. Yeah, yeah. And this is we're talking about again a car that when it was put away it was worth probably about ten grand. I mean ballpark. Just a mm-hmm. just a ballpark figure. Probably less, really. Now it's worth four million dollars and that's a that's a significant asset that they have to deal with. So this is gonna lead to a long uh arduous trial probably. Right. And so everybody started claiming their piece of the pie or their their uh Say explaining why they felt they deserved the car. Even it turns out Phil Spector himself. Yeah, he comes in with uh, with his lawyer Robert Shapiro of OJ fame. <laughs> yeah, so the that guy's back again, right? And he claimed ownership, saying he never sold the car to the bodyguard, but he had only given it to him for safekeeping. And so he's claiming ownership as well. Now Spector, of course, later. I mean, this, he's not going to be a player in this for very long because in two thousand nine. Uh, that's when Spectre was put away for this murder. Second degree. Yeah, the second murder. degree murder, right? So he's currently in prison, as we know. Uh, but in 2009, that part of the story ends. Um, but, but as, uh, as Fred Simeon says, you know, everybody's gonna have a story of why they own a piece of this four million dollar pie, right? Yeah. And, you know, who, who rightfully owns it? And even though he had purchased it from Don O'Hare, at least that's what, that's what the story is. You know, he had been sold this car legitimately. And the judge found in favor of Fred Simeon. So, you know, it was, in fact, his vehicle at the end of all this. Um, now, it's like, what, 16 years later, after the sale, I guess, and, uh, you know, the other five Daytonas, ones that were all produced in Italy, they're all in the hands of private collectors somewhere around the world. You know, they're, right. they're kind of scattered here and there. But in 2009, one of them sold at auction for $7.5 million. So mm-hmm. and that's one of the five that were built elsewhere. Now, I know those are rare. But the prototype itself, right. that's the most rare of all. That's the one American-built car. That's the very crude, very uh, crudely put together, you know, kind of rough around the edges mm. vehicle. But it's probably worth way more than $7.5 So much so that it's difficult for us to put a price tag on it. Uh, it. We also have to mention that unlike the other five vehicles, this one, yeah, is in its original state. No repainting even. No parts replaced. And yep. You can get interior photographs of the vehicle, and it's not super impressive. Yeah, I mean, this car is, you know, taking its licks, I guess. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it's been on the racetrack. It's been on Bonneville. Um, it was in the hands of Spectre for a while, you know, just around town. It looked like the front end was kind of caved in a little bit, so they've had to hammer that out. But we, you know, we haven't told them yet. It, this car is currently on display and, and I think everybody kind of knew this early on. Oh, but, yeah. But at the uh, the Simeon Foundation, the the Automotive Museum. So you can go and look at this car. You can go see this car. And, you know, Fred will start up the car and drive it around in the parking lot occasionally. And it's in much better condition than when it was found. If you look at the original photos when it was, you know, dragged out of the storage unit with the yellow paint oh, on the yeah. door, oh, it's yeah. really, really rough. But, you know, the, the great thing about this car, again, this is all part of the history of this thing. It's in excellent condition right out of storage. I mean, it wasn't in bad, bad shape. It wasn't like one of the Times Capsule cars. It was a little bit better um, mm-hmm. in that, you know, it wasn't buried underground. So that's one thing, right? Right. But it has everything original about it. it it's not missing any of its parts. It has everything except for, you know, I think there was that um, – yeah, here's here's where that uh, quote came from about the mufflers. I'll, I'll read it now. Um they, uh, I think they had the the interior, a little bit of the interior redone. I'm talking probably like the seats or something like that. Maybe uh, the carpet. just the upholstery, and I think getting rid of those uh, 
the writing on the side of the car. Yeah, they did that. That Spectre done in house paint. Yeah, they had uh, the, the paint had oxidized a little bit on, yeah. on the car as well, so they buffed that out, and it was fine. Everything came out fine. Uh, they had bumped out the front bumper. You know, they had to hammer that out. Yeah. And I think there was a – they said maybe just a tiny little bit of wiring that they had to replace – and uh, there was something else. There was another – maybe a rubber piece or something that, that they had to replace. But um, very, very little uh, was changed on the vehicle at all. It's it's primarily the way – I mean just about the way it came out of the Venice shop from yeah. from Carroll Shelby. So again, this is uh, this is pretty good. I mean after – you know, he had – Spectre had it for about five years in his hands. He didn't completely mess it up in that time. And, uh, and you know – Russell from Ruskits, uh, Jim Russell. He did, he hadn't uh, he hadn't really damaged it at all. He barely had the car really. Um, and then of course you know Donna O'Hara, who had the car for thirty years, she didn't do anything with it. So uh, the right. car's in excellent shape. It's in really really good condition. Which is surprising, given the uh, strange tumultuous journey it took to twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can read Simeon's um, accounts of what they had to do with the car, and it is a uh, it is a surprisingly short list of improvements. I think the biggest thing would be a. What do you see? Brake lines and yeah. some oh, wiring. That's right. It was brake lines. That's right. Uh, brake lines and just a little bit of wiring, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know that uh, <laughs> that Tijuana interior that they had put in. You know, which is just really the upholstery on the seats. I think so. Uh, you know, not not anything major by any means, and it was all easy to overcome. Get it back to its original shape. Now, Ben, one thing that we need to do is mention kind of like where this, what significance this thing holds in history. We've told you the story of the car. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, yeah. of course, it's you know incredible. I guess skyrocketing value, you know, up to uh, four million plus, whatever it was worth, or, or whatever it is worth now. But there's more. Know. Yeah, there's more to it. This this car, uh, CSX twenty two eighty seven, was the very first car to ever be put on the National Historic Vehicle Register here in the United States, and, and um, that's that's significant in its own right. There are very few cars that are on this list now. I think that when this article is written, there were only seven on the list, but now I think I, I took a look at the site the other day and. It's a little bit tough to, to determine because they've treated them visually in a different way. It looks to me as if there are about 19 cars on this list now at this point. And, you know, things like uh, the Tucker is on there, you know, right. the, the, uh, the the prototype, the uh, the Tin Goose. Um, the Myers-Manx is on there. That's the original. Old Doom, Red. That's the Doom Buggy design. Yeah. Uh, you know, you probably are familiar. You could just say Doom Buggy and you would picture what this Myers-Manx looks like. 1938 Maserati. A lot of them, uh, some of them are race cars. Not all of them are race cars. Uh, but it's a it's a very um, exclusive list to be on, and this was the very first car to ever be added to that to that register. So uh, again, that has a, a significant all its, significance all its own. Um, I don't know, Ben. It just feels like this car has such a, a fascinating history. It's like um, as a lot of people will say. Long and of course I know why they say it, but I mean it's like a it's like a Hollywood script, really. It's like it's like a movie. Yeah, when you're it, reading about I'm it, I'm wondering why this hasn't been a movie yet. Uh, this was also named Car of the Year in 2014 at the International Historic Motoring Awards. Oh, and just to go back to what Scott pointed out, that I, I think is is incredibly important. Uh, the National Historic Vehicle Register, it's on the same level as. You know the kind of historic registers where we could expect to find the Statue of Liberty, or oh, the yeah. space shuttle. You know we've said it before, and, and we're going to say it one more time because it, it's worth mentioning here. When you see the car, it's pretty crude in the way that it was it was created. It's not you know it doesn't look like somebody made it in their garage. I mean it's a little better than that, but. Um, it was a race car. It was constructed on a shop floor. It was designed on butcher paper. But the thing is, this was built right at the end of an era when. 
uh, you could build something like this and still compete at an international level, and that's really unique. That's one of the reasons why it's on this National Historic Register. It's like one of those, like um, now it's too late to do this. You can't go back, but this is uh, you know a remnant of the time that was. Like this is this is what um, what was possible at one time. Yeah. Uh, it made a lot of people kind of you know dream really. I mean that, you know that they could do something like this because that's exactly what Carol Shelby did. He had a dream really. And he put it together, and he did it. He he achieved that goal within two years, and uh, and then moved on to other things. He did. He very much did, and it remains an iconic thing today. We are so fortunate to be able to go and visit this vehicle. And you know, I think you and I talked a little while off air. I do have a trip to Philly in my future, so now it's yeah. cheese steaks in the CSX two two eight seven all the way. Head over to the uh, Simeon Museum, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty cool. I, uh, see if I can talk the guy into uh, driving it around the lot a little bit. <laughs> I should probably email him first. What do you think? I, w- I would think that would be good. You wanted uh, like to surprise that guy with that. You know, like, mm-hmm. uh, hey, Fred, I thought maybe I'd take the uh, CSX 2287 out. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. And you'd say, like, I haven't driven a clutch in a while, so maybe a little rusty. <laughs> I would say I'm going to get – I'm getting my license soon, and I think this would be a great car to practice on. Jeesh. Yeah, oh, good, boy. Good luck. Good I'd luck. be tarred and feathered, run out of town on yeah. a rail. Well, you know, I, that's about all I have on the uh, on CSX 2287 for now. What do you think? Yeah, I think so, and we hope that you have enjoyed this show because we had a lot of fun doing it. Um, we also have an announcement for everybody uh, tuning in to Car Stuff, which is that Scott and I received uh, received word from our uh, Grand Poobahs that we are moving on to other projects. The Grand Poobahs, I like that. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a good, uh, cool phrase. Yeah, absolutely. We're uh, we're going to be uh, called out for other duty, I guess. We're going to be uh, working on some shows that you're going to see in the near future, not uh, not extremely near, but near future. And uh, it's some stuff that we have some interest in. It's not car stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to uh, probably uh, wrap it up with this one. This is probably going to be the end of it for the uh, for you know at the end of 2017 here as we go into 2018. But mm-hmm. uh, in in 2018, if you like hearing our voice, you can uh, you can find <laughs> us on other shows. And uh, we can't really make any of that public right now, but uh, it will be something that I think a lot of our audience will really like, will enjoy. We can say it would. Truly be a crime not to tune in. Yeah, Ben, that's a good way to put it. I guess maybe our listeners can read between the lines on that uh, that cryptic message that you just gave them. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and um, before we head out um, and put – Put this show on the uh, on on the road for a little while. Uh, we want to sincerely thank all the fantastic people that we have met through these shows. We've been so fortunate to meet you, uh, Glenn Beck, Josh Baker, Rudy Smith, Rudy Smith, of course, Rudy. Uh, please keep writing to us. Simon Workman, who came out to see us during the uh, Rally North America mm-hmm. event that we did. Yeah. And, oh, we should thank the Rally North America people because uh, yeah. they've, they've really helped us out. The organizers, the Tony, the, the people that you know participate in that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we said Rudy Smith already. I think. Yeah. Uh, um, El Buche, if we want to go all the El way Buche. back, right? <laughs> Clayton. I mean, it seems yeah. like Clayton, Josh Baker. We, we we've had yeah. so many people that we correspond with regularly, and I know mm-hmm. we're going to forget a lot of names right now. I mean, we don't mean to, but this is just kind of. Uh, sprung on us uh, very recently. So we're trying to uh, keep it classy, I guess, as we as we leave here. I don't want to 
tear up or anything, Ben, but it's been a long run. I've really enjoyed working with you, and uh, hopefully we'll get to work on future projects together. I think we're going to. I hope so, too, man, really... because you usually do most of the work. So <laughs> That's I want to hang out. That is not true. I've, I've, uh, I just want to tell you that uh, for the last uh, – well, it's nearly 10 years. It's nine. It's n- we've been doing this for nine years and one month now. And uh, it, it's been a pleasure to sit across the table from you, and uh, and I've just really enjoyed every single conversation we've had. Oh, shucks, and, uh, and I hope that comes through in our podcast. I hope that you know if you're a relatively new listener, you'll go back and listen to our catalog because we have uh, what's approaching. I would guess we'd have 900 plus shows at this point, if I had to guess, somewhere around there. And please be, um, <laughs> please, uh, please be kind. When you get to the oldest era when we started out, because um, one thing I want to not to turn this into a big thank you fest, but, um, you know, when I started at How Stuff Works, I started as an intern, right? You had a legit real job here. I was an intern <laughs> and um, I really, really wanted to be able to um, to have a podcast or to pursue this thing, which was you know, it's the end of the show. I'll be candid. It was a wild-ass idea for a lot of people. And they thought, oh, this will never work. And the only reason I got a shot to do this stuff is because of you. And you're the one who said, all right, I'll 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 work with this guy who was uh, – um, Well, we didn't know each other. We uh, Yeah, we had no idea. Yeah. Um, and then over over the years, like I, I have been really uh, fortunate to learn so much – not just about um, not just about the various strange and fascinating things in the automotive world that that we've we've learned uh, from you listeners as well, but also about how to be a uh, how to be a better podcaster. And I'm going to say it, but don't follow up on this. And a better researcher, slightly. <laughs> so. Well, Ben, you know, honestly, you've taught me a lot over the years as well, and uh, and our listeners have taught both of us. You know, oh they, yeah, the best the, part of the show is them. Obviously, our, I, they really have. They've written in and, and yeah. really supported us along the way. So we appreciate everybody that's listening right now. And uh, and again, uh, sorry to see it go, but uh, mm. we're on to maybe bigger and better things. We'll see. I mean, hopefully, it's bigger and better. Join us on the next legs of our journey. Uh, you can also, in the meantime, while we're we're working on this new chapter of stuff, you can check out uh, several of Scott's appearances on one of my other shows, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, uh, where we look into conspiracy theories related to the automotive world. Oh, sure. And before we start working on you know these new shows, uh, you know both you and I, well, Ben has his own show, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know stuff they don't want you to know, mm-hmm. and uh, and he works on many other shows. So you'll be able to catch him elsewhere and mm-hmm. i often will sit in with you know jonathan on tech stuff or something sure, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I make some appearances here and there i won't be completely gone for a while but um um just out of the seat for a while yeah and i'll be back yeah yeah and write uh write to us uh with anything that's on your mind uh not to be too bittersweet but write to me specifically about the shows we didn't get to yet because <laughs> i'm going to build up i'm going to find something to do with them uh, something really cool and in the interim, all our social media stuff is still going to be up. So uh, don't don't uh, forget to share really cool car stories with your fellow listeners. And uh, I guess, Scott, most importantly, I, I, I got to say the, the last word should go to you. All right. Well, for the last time, you can reach us at carstuff at howstuffworks.com.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Gabby Reese. Join me and my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton on our journey with Laird Superfood. From our kitchen to yours, we've crafted delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and so much more using high quality functional ingredients. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code Gabby2024 for 20% off your first order.